1: And time travel, science, and technology brought to you by theoretical physicist, futurist, popularizer of science, and world renowned author Professor Michio Kaku at GCNLive.com. This is Science Fantastic.
2: Welcome back to Science Fantastic with Professor Michio Kaku. On Science Fantastic, we profile the amazing, jaw-dropping scientific discoveries which are revolutionizing our world and touching our lives. And in this hour, once again, we're going to throw the lines open because this hour is dedicated to you. That's right, to you. If you're listening to me, on on the internet on radio and you want to have a chance to talk back well here's your chance give us a call the hotline number is 612-564-8135 write that number down 612-564-8135 now when you hear the recording leave your name Call letters at the radio station if you're listening to one, the city you're calling from, and then there's your opportunity. Ask that question. Make that comment. And perhaps your thoughts will be heard on almost 100 radio stations across the United States. So, why should we scientists have all the fun? We have all the fun probing the secrets of nature. Why don't you just jump right in and be part of Science Fantastic. Also, go to my website and you can find out where I'll be speaking and traveling to. The place to go is mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U dot org. And you can see reference to all the videos that I've done and also the books that I've written. I've written four New York Times bestsellers. The recent one is called The Future of Humanity. That's right, The Future of Humanity in Outer Space. Where are we going to be in a 100 years? In a thousand years, will we fulfill our destiny and become a space-faring, star-faring civilization joining the ranks of perhaps other civilizations in outer space? Sounds like science fiction? Well, part of it is, but find out where science is taking us. Give us a call. The number is 612-564-8135. And perhaps you can be on Science Fantastic. Okay, let's move on now and take the first listener phone call.
3: Yeah, this is Robert, local station WMKT, Traverse City. Uh, my question is that I understand that time slows down the faster you travel. So if, a say, an astronaut goes into space and he's traveling thousands of miles an hour and he comes back to Earth, well, maybe he's only like two or three seconds younger than we are does that mean that the past, and obviously she's here with us, does that mean that the past can exist at the same time as the future? In other words, what I'm asking is, is my grandmother in 1920 getting married right now at the same time I'm here? I hope you can answer that because, you know, it just seems a little funny to me. Thank you.
2: Yeah, well, you have the right question. However, the answer is a little bit more uh, subtle than you may realize. Um, Einstein once joked that he put a clock everywhere in the universe, at a different place, everywhere in the universe, each clock beating at a different rate. But he said he was so poor, he could not afford a clock of his own. He had to look outside his window to see the clock tower to find out what time it was. And that's exactly the way he viewed it. You put a clock everywhere at every point in the universe, each clock beating at a different rate. Okay, so you're right. The astronauts, when they go into outer space, they come back a fraction of a second younger than a twin that is on the planet Earth. And if you want to find out exactly how much time has distorted, take the velocity of an astronaut, that's 18,000 miles per hour going around the Earth, divide by the speed of light, that's 186,282 miles per second. Okay, so the velocity of the rocket divided by the speed of light, square it, square it, and you find an incredibly small number. That is the ratio at which time is slowing down. The velocity squared divided by the speed of light squared is a very tiny number. And you can see immediately that the astronauts, when they come back, are like a microsecond, less than a microsecond younger. So it's a very, very small effect. Now, if you boost that rocket, however, up to near the speed of light, let's say, hypothetically, then it would be, let's say, 90% the speed of light divided by the speed of light, which is 90%. Now we're getting somewhere. Now we find out that time slows down so much that it's actually appreciable. Now, you ask yet another question. Does that mean that you can meet your your relatives who have, have passed away in the past? Does that mean you can meet your children when they're all grown up decades into the future? And the answer is no. Again, imagine putting a clock every point in the universe, each clock beating at a different rate. But does that mean that one clock on the Earth can immediately talk to another clock in the past? And the answer is no. You have to bring the clocks together. And that's the key. When you bring the clocks together, then they start to beat at the same rate because they're traveling at the same velocity. So in other words, you cannot meet your mother before you're born. Sorry about that. Now, there is a loophole, however, in Einstein's equations, which may give you the possibility of meeting your mother before you're born. And that is if you can drill a hole through space through a black hole. That is perhaps one of the only ways in which you can twist time so much that you can actually go back into the past. This is still controversial, of course, but get a copy of my book, Physics of the Impossible, and I give you the pros and cons of what would would happen if one day we could meet our parents before we're born. Okay, let's move on now and take the next listener phone call. Hello,
3: Dr. Paku
2: This is Eddie Bryant from Murphy, North Carolina, streaming from your website.
3: My question is this. I was reading a paper published in November 2017 called Reversing the Thermodynamic Arrow of Time Using Quantum Correlation, in which they were able to violate a principle of the laws of thermodynamics where they entangled two particles and that certain initial conditions allow for the heat flow from cold to hot, essentially reversing the arrow of time. As we all know, Entropy seeks equilibrium, and in this case, that doesn't happen. I'm wondering if you can please expand on this paper in order to demystify the substance of the research for us, un, uh, for us less educated. And from that paper, I was curious about any theoretical possibilities in the future to entangle particles in time, thus allowing particle B, made after particle A, to go back in time to a state it never existed in, quantifying time travel a little bit more than what this paper suggests which I'm gathering is just an appearance of some violation. I've seen plenty of videos on how to entangle photon particles, but I'll leave anything more complicated than that up to you guys. I know this isn't a possibility now, but that paper led me to be curious if it was at all possible. Cue in your book, Physics of the Impossible. A great read. Thanks for the time. I'll be listening for your answer.
2: Well, the answer to your question is yes. Next question. Well, no. Let me give your answer a uh, a serious, serious, thought-provoking response. First of all, let's talk about the second law of thermodynamics. Let's talk about entropy. Let's talk about entanglement. And let's put them all together and see whether you can go backwards in time and build a time machine from this. First of all, we have the second law of thermodynamics, which basically says that in an open system, chaos always increases. Things rust. Eventually, people die. Things fall apart. Things get corroded, they rust, they disintegrate. That's the second law of thermodynamics. Oh, we have to take a short commercial break, but then after the break, we'll talk about, well, is it possible to live forever by reversing the laws of thermodynamics? We'll answer that question after the break. Once again, you are listening to Science Fantastic. Give us a call at 612-564-8135, and we're going to try to answer the question, can you reverse the arrow of time? And maybe even live forever.
4: Hi, this is Dr. Joel Wallach, the mineral doctor. You've heard me talk about ninety for life for years. Sixty minerals, sixteen vitamins, twelve amino acids, two fatty acids. You may not know this, that I've actually designed Arthur decks for animals. <laughs> That's right. Your pets need 90 for Life too. Get this essential pet product by calling 877 279 9422. That's 877 279 9422. Again, 877 279 9422.
5: It's obvious. The unthinkable continues. Most Americans know something very wrong is happening. People in charge keep telling you that everything's fine and to stop noticing. But you know better. That's why self-reliant folks are investing in emergency food storage. And you should, too. My Patriot Supply, the nation's largest emergency preparedness company, are the ones you can trust. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners averaging over 2,000 calories per day.
1: Professor Michio Kaku. This is Science Fantastic.
2: Welcome back to Science Fantastic with Professor Michio Kaku in this hour. Well, this hour is your hour. This is the time when you can get to the phones and give us a call at 612-564-8135. And maybe you can have your thoughts heard on national radio, on almost 100 radio stations that take Science Fantastic and, of course, the Internet as well. Well, before the break, we had a very interesting question, and let's break it down into its components. First of all, we have the second law of thermodynamics, which says that in any open system, things fall apart. We all know that things rust, things get stained, things crumble, things die. In fact, that's the reason why we die. We die because chaos eventually takes over. Genetic mutations build up in our cells over time. Cells get sluggish and eventually don't function, and then we die. That's why we die, the second law of thermodynamics. However, I mentioned an open system. This means that in a closed system, you can temporarily reverse the arrow of time. So the arrow of time points toward chaos. The arrow of time points toward death, destruction, collapse, calamity. However that's in an open system. Let's talk about a closed system whereby you can actually make changes in the arrow of time. There's a loophole in the laws of thermodynamics, and that is if you apply energy from the outside, mechanical energy from the outside. So in other words, some people ask the question, if we have the second law of thermodynamics on the earth, then why do we exist? Humans are obviously smarter than rocks. So, if the, if the universe naturally creates rocks, how were we created? We represent a violation of the laws of thermodynamics. We are intelligent. We can sing, dance, we can connive, we can, we can build atomic bombs, we can build rocket ships. Rocks cannot. Therefore, it seems to uh, an average person that the laws of thermodynamics are violated. Nope. If you add energy from the outside, you can locally reverse the laws of thermodynamics. And where does that energy come from? Ta-da! It comes from the sun. The sun's energy provides us with nutrients which allow us to therefore reverse the laws of thermodynamics locally now this means of course that the earth will eventually die, sorry about that, but that's a law of physics however, it means that temporarily, locally we can reverse the laws of thermodynamics and bingo, here we are sunlight makes possible photosynthesis we eat the plants that arise from photosynthesis, we metabolize these plants and get energy and that's where we come from. That's why we have evolution. That's why we can have things that are intelligent arise from rocks. So then the questioner asks yet another question What about the quantum theory? So far, we've only talked about classical physics, that is, the physics of Isaac Newton. The physics of Isaac Newton is based on the idea that every atom is like a billiard ball, a tiny steel ball. You know exactly where that ball is. But in the quantum theory, In the quantum theory, there's uncertainty. You don't know exactly where that ball is at any given time. But, yes, even under the quantum theory, the second law of thermodynamics applies because we're dealing with the motion of large amounts of atoms. On average, if you average over billions of atoms, the laws of quantum mechanics gradually disappears. This is the reason, for example, why you can't be two places at the same time. Atoms can do that, Electrons can do that easily. Electrons can be two places at the same time, but you cannot because you are very big. That's why you average over trillions upon trillions of atoms, each atom being many places at the same time. And bingo, here you are. You have the illusion you have the illusion that you are exactly at one place at one given time. That's the view that Einstein had. That's the view that Isaac Newton had, but sorry about that. It's wrong. At the quantum theory, you don't really know where the electron is. That's called the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle. This means also that you can have two electrons that are entangled. That is, they vibrate together, and then if you separate them, There is an umbilical cord, an invisible umbilical cord that emerges connecting them. So what happens to one electron inevitably affects the other electron. That's called entanglement. Now, the questioner asked a question as follows. Can all this quantum gibberish reverse the second law of thermodynamics and my personal point of view is no because the second law of thermodynamics operates on an average averaging over trillions upon trillions of atoms where quantum effects are gradually washed out that's why we cannot be two places at the same time now when i talk about this to audiences I mentioned, therefore, that our universe could actually split, perhaps, into two universes because of the quantum principle. And then people ask the question, does that mean that Elvis Presley is still alive in another universe? And the answer is, believe it or not, you cannot rule it out. There's a finite probability of other universes being out there in which people that have died in our universe are still alive in another universe. That sounds preposterous, but hey, that's called the quantum theory. Okay, well let's move on to the next listener phone call.
3: Hi, Professor.
0: My name is Francine. The station is WSBI Radio 1, U.S. Virgin Islands. How does an earthquake cause a tsunami? That deadly thing that hurts a lot of people. Bye.
2: Well, you ask a question that's in the news because, of course, the earth is geologically active and sometimes big earthquakes create tsunamis which can destroy huge chunks of real estate. Look what happened to Fukushima in northern Japan. Uh, We had an earthquake uh, that erupted caught many seismologists off guard, created a huge tidal wave which inundated the city, and 10,000 people lost their lives. This happens in Indonesia, and in the Philippines. And the question that the questioner asked is, how? How are tsunamis formed? First of all, there are two major types of earthquakes. One earthquake is caused when two fault lines slide horizontally past each other, like the San Andreas Fault. You realize that San Francisco and Los Angeles, millions of years from now, will be right next to each other. That's right, right next to each other, because Los Angeles is going north relative to San Francisco, which is going south. So California is being ripped apart. That's called a sliding fault, and sliding faults do not create tsunamis. So if this fault is underneath the ocean, one fault would go north, the other fault would go south, And no tsunamis are formed at all. However, if you live in the Seattle, Portland area, you have to be worried about the Cascadia Fault, not the San Andreas Fault. And the Cascadia Fault is a subduction fault, where one fault line goes underneath another fault line. That's called subduction When that happens abruptly, that means the floor of the ocean, the ocean floor itself, drops, leaving a huge gap, which is then filled by water from the neighboring area, creating a tidal wave. So you can actually create a mini tidal wave in your bathtub tonight. Next time you're in your bathtub with your rubber ducky, put your hands, your two hands, underneath the surface of the water and then suddenly drop and raise the other hand. By dropping one hand, raising the other hand, you create a tiny mini tidal wave on the surface of your bathtub right next to your rubber ducky. That is called a tidal wave or tsunami created by a subduction fault. And we have them, and they're terrifying, uh, off the coast of the United States in the Cascadia Fault. Now, we know the Cascadia Fault has erupted in geologic times by actually looking at the ecology of the Seattle area. Some geologists have noticed the fact that there seem to be dead forests. Dead forests, trees that died centuries ago, many, many, many years ago, that died because of salt water. Salt water inundated that area. But everywhere you look, there's no salt water. And then you begin to realize, aha, If you are so many miles away from the coastline, it must have been a huge, a huge tidal wave that sent salt water into the coastline, killing all these forests. Well, we'll continue a discussion about earthquakes after the break. Once again, you are listening to Science Fantastic. Give us a call. The hotline number is 612-564-8135. And maybe you can get on national radio. Give us a call.
3: you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today.
5: USA News. I'm Ryan Daniels. A top international criminal court hearing arguments around claims that Israel's carrying out a genocide against Palestinians in its war with Hamas. U.S. officials Thursday reiterating the nation's stance with Israel, saying the claims have no merit. Genocide is one of the most
1: heinous acts any entity or individual can commit, and such an allegation should only be made with the greatest of care.
5: State Department spokesman Vedant Patel, South Africa is presenting its case against Israel before the global criminal court. Israel set to address the court today. U.S. and British forces are reportedly working together on military strikes against Houthi rebel targets in Yemen. U.S. government officials carry Characterize these actions as retaliatory, saying this comes after months of attacks by the Iranian-backed militia on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. There are multiple locations included in U.S. and British target packages. This is USA News.
1: Wellness and self-care
6: doesn't have to be complicated. People often write to tell us what has happened for them since starting Extendivite. Allow me to read a few. In one month, my blood pressure dropped significantly. I no longer get chest pain after exercise. It's amazing, and I ordered my second bottle. The reviews are spot on. My target is to get off BP meds, and if it keeps going like this, I see a light at the end of the tunnel. So far, a great product is what it claims to be. Great product. A few days in and I could feel a difference for certain. Not checking medical stats yet. I know this is really working by how I feel. We'll continue to take this product. To order, call 1-877-928-8822 or visit Extendivite.com. That's X-T-E-N-D-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Extend your life with
0: extended. I need more time to file my taxes. Help.
1: On irs.gov, you can use IRS Free File to get six more months, or you can submit IRS Form 4868 by the April deadline. If you owe taxes, you can make an electronic payment and get a filing extension with no need to submit Form 4868. Go to irs.gov for details. But remember, an extension of time to file is not an extension of time to pay what you owe. Both my legs
5: were amputated due to an IED. It's when you start to try to get back into, like, an everyday life. I absolutely felt like I lost some of my purpose. There must be something more. When DAV came into my life, they gave me a new mission. I could still be a productive member of society, could still support a family. The
7: DAV
1: gave him that sense of structure and purpose again to get his life back together.
5: Visit DAV.org to learn more about our mission.
1: Michio Kaku This is Science Fantastic
2: Welcome back to Science Fantastic with Professor Michio Kaku and give us a call if you want to have your thoughts heard on national radio Once again the number to call is 612-564-564 Eight one three five. All we ask is that you leave your name, call letters at the radio station if you're listening to one, the city you're calling from, and bingo, ask that question, make that comment, and maybe you can get on national radio. You know, whenever I walk outside, whenever I see the sun, the clouds, the oceans, I pretty much know where everything came from. I know why we have air, I know how old the mountains are, I know where the oceans came from, I know why the sun shines. It's not a mystery to me. And sometimes I wonder how can you go through life walking down the street wondering, gee what does it all mean? Where does it all come from? Why does this happen? Why does it happen? And never know the answer. Well unfortunately that's the way it is with most people. But perhaps not for you. Maybe you want to know why why do things happen the way they do? Well, give us a call and find out. The hotline number once again is 612-564-8135. Why be a leaf in the wind, being blown by forces beyond your control, not in control of your own destiny? You know, that's one of the things I learned growing up. If you want to control your own destiny, then learn about the world around you. Don't be a leaf blown in the wind, going whichever way the wind blows, not being in control of your own fate. Why don't you control your own fate? Learn about the world around you so it's not mysterious, so you don't get caught off guard. And the number to call, once again, if you want to ask a question or make a comment, is 612 5648135. And if you want to find out more about my work and listen to previous shows, go to my website mkaku.org, m k a k u.org. You can find a library of different TV appearances that I've made and also radio shows that I've done and once again if you want to get on science fantastic call 612-564-8135 leave your name call letters to the radio station if you're listening to one the city you're calling from and then ask that question make that comment and maybe you can have your thoughts heard on national radio okay well let's move right on now and take the next listener phone call
3: Hello, my name is Jay. I listen to your great show on WNDV in Daytona Beach, Florida. I have a question about uh, names. We have names for our planet Earth, our moon Luna, our star Sun, our galaxy Milky Way. But do we have a name for our solar system? With so many planets orbiting other stars, do you think we may have to give solar systems names soon? Thank you for your interesting radio show, Professor Kaku, and I really enjoy and look forward to more shows. Thank you.
2: Well, you ask a very interesting question about namings, and it turns out that recently some astronomers have yelled and screamed at other astronomers precisely about the naming of objects in outer space. You know, we have the Astronomical Union, which uh, helps to regulate the naming of things, but it becomes very contentious because some astronomers have a sentimental tie with certain names, and yet these names may not be totally scientific. for example, the most famous example of this is Pluto. Now, by rights, Pluto should perhaps not be a planet at all. Well, let's take another short commercial break. And after that, we'll talk about the naming of things. Where do these names come from? Is Pluto really a planet? And is there planet X out there? What? Who's going to name planet X? Give us a call at 612-564-8135.
7: Dot .com gcnfood.com
1: This is science fantastic
2: Welcome back to Science Fantastic with Professor Michio Kaku. Once again, if you want to get on Science Fantastic and ask a question, give us a call at 612-564-8135. Leave your name, call letters in the radio station you're listening to, if you're listening to one, the city you're calling from, and then ask away. Ask that question. Make that comment. Well, we had a call come in about naming things. How do we name things? And it's actually rather contentious. Uh, first of all, many of the stars that you see at night, many of them have Arabic names. Algol, Altair. Why? Because, well, during, after the fall of the Roman Empire, much of the knowledge of astronomy went to the Arabs. They were the ones that carefully transcribed that information. Algebra, for example, was preserved from the Greeks, and Algebra, Altair, Algal, the names of the stars, yes, a lot of them have Arabic names precisely for that reason. So, with so many planets out there now, how do we go about naming things? Well, usually the people that discover these things have first dibs on making the name for them. However, solar systems, to my knowledge, do not have a name. However, solar systems going around a certain star have a name. Uh, We have Proxima Centauri, for example. Alpha Centauri is a triple star system. Proxima Centauri B is one of the planets going around Proxima Centauri. Proxima Centauri B is the closest, closest planet that we have identified that is near the Earth. So the ABC then gives you the nomenclature of the different planets within that solar system. Now, this process of naming things actually became rather contentious over the issue of Pluto. So let me explain that really quickly. First of all, Pluto was discovered around 1930, and Pluto was thought to be a planet because scientists were cataloging planets. They went all the way out to Uranus-Neptune, and the next one logically would be another planet. But Pluto is an oddball it's probably not a planet in the ordinary sense of the word at all. We have the gas giants, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, gas giants which are huge and Pluto which is more like a moon than a planet and it's not even a gas giant at all, it's an oddball out there and it's really part of the Kuiper belt, the Kuiper belt of comets. Kuiper himself was an astronomer who theorized the existence of a belt of comets surrounding our solar system, and Pluto is thought to be a member of the Kuiper belt. But in deference to those astronomers who insist that Pluto is a planet, we call it a dwarf planet. So there are dwarf planets within the Kuiper belt of comets. Now that's kind of confusing, isn't it? But just remember that Pluto really is not like one of the other gas giants. Now it gets more complicated now because now we may have planet X. Planet X seems to be a gigantic planet about the size of Neptune, way out there. And so the nomenclature is starting to get more and more complicated. There's also another object identified out there called the goblin, nicknamed the goblin. And that seems to be an object almost the size of Pluto, way beyond the orbit of Pluto. So once again, to make sense of all these things, there is an astronomical body that officially gives names to all these objects. And that's where the nomenclature comes from. And again, usually the people who discover that object have first dibs to coin a name for that object. But hey, politics is politics. There's going to be a politics even in the naming of planets and stars. Okay, well, let's move on now to the next listener phone call.
8: Hi, this is Ken. Um, I'm calling because I'd like to ask about uh, Albert Einstein's contributions. Um, they say he's a genius, but at the same time, it's debatable whether or not, uh, you know, like he, how big of a genius he was, because he got many things wrong, including like um, the uh, background radiation, uh, quantum mechanics. The same thing is true of also Rosalind Franklin. It's my understanding, she may have discovered the structure of DNA, but at the same time, Francis and Crick uh, actually, um, actually contributed substantially to what Franklin already had. So, you know, I mean, people have villainized Watson and Crick, but uh, in actuality, they were the ones who really discovered the the, uh, the DNA molecule, so I'd like to ask you to clarify that.
2: Well, first of all, you have a point, and that is, we're all human, and even though we say that, for example, Isaac Newton or, or Albert Einstein were geniuses, what does that really mean, given the fact that they're also human, and they also made mistakes as well? You can go through the works of Isaac Newton, for example, and find many mistakes there, but he ranks as perhaps one of the greatest scientists of all time, starting from nothing, literally nothing. He created the understanding of the mechanical universe, and the forces of today well let's take a short commercial break and after the break we're going to continue a discussion of well who really is a genius and who gets credit for making these big discoveries and once again give us a call at 612-564-8135 and perhaps your thoughts will be heard on national radio
0: Are you curious about what might be missing from your diet and supplement choices? Take a free health assessment to identify your possible nutrient deficiencies. As a certified holistic health coach, I will help you assess and prioritize a supplement program based on Dr. Wallach's recommendations. Call Linda at 833-VITAL90. That number to call is 833-848-2590. That's 833-VITAL90.
1: Brought to you by Professor Michio Kaku. This is Science Fantastic.
2: Welcome back to Science Fantastic with Professor Michio Kaku. Well, just before the commercial break, we had a question about giving credit. I mean, was Einstein really a genius given the fact that he did get some things wrong? Well, yes, I think he is a genius, but I think we have to use words more carefully, because ultimately we're human. Ultimately, we do make mistakes, but I think uh, perhaps there's a continuum. A continuum of ranking of the great scientists, and of course this is still very subjective. Number one on the rank of all scientists, the greatest scientists of all time, would probably be Isaac Newton. He was the one starting from nothing, a world that was full of witchcrafts and demons and goblins. He started from that world and created mechanics a physical understanding of the universe itself. Laws that we still use today when sending space probes throughout the universe. That is incredible. Discovering calculus, discovering the basic laws of color, uh, understanding the, the laws of motion, incredible. Next would be Einstein, he took the calculus of Newton and from that was able to extract physical principles which gave us special relativity and general relativity And yes, all of them made mistakes. You can read Principia, and well, Principia is a classical tome. It's not quantum mechanical. And the same thing with Einstein's theory. There's no mention of quantum mechanics. But I don't think we can be too harsh criticizing Einstein for neglecting the quantum theory. Einstein never said that the quantum theory was wrong; he just a didn't like it, and B thought that ultimately it would be derived from a higher theory, the unified field theory. So again, people get Einstein's mistakes incorrect. He never said that einstein he never said that quantum mechanics was wrong, that is the theory of the atom. he said it was incomplete. He said that there must be a higher theory which gives uh, gives quantum mechanics as a derivative. And also about the DNA pictures. Yes, Rosalind Franklin. Rosalind Franklin did not understand the double helix nature of what she was doing. She was the one who took the electron micrographs, which made it possible for other people to say, aha, it's a double helix. Here's how it all fits together. No, she did not do that. But she was part of the discovery. And so you have to give her credit for being part of the discovery that propelled DNA to the centerpiece of biology. So once again, I think we're all human. There's a continuum, a continuum of contributions of things. And when you look at one given tremendous achievement, usually it's the contribution of many people. Nobel Prize winners, in all their humbleness, usually give credit to all the other scientists who also participated in that search. And unfortunately, many of them never win the Nobel Prize. Think of the Nobel Prize. Think of all the scientists who never won the Nobel Prize uh, because they never got the credit that they deserved. Okay, well, let's move on now to the next listener phone call.
3: Hello, this is Armand from Queens, New York. I to you on YouTube. I was wondering, I saw an article that said that the Chinese uh, have an AK-47, it's like a laser that can light people on fire from a, a mile away pretty much, or a half mile, something like that. Do you know anything about that? And do you think that's possible? So, all right, have a great day.
2: Uh, well first of all are the Chinese working on lasers? Yes but for that matter are we working on lasers and the answer to that is yes is it possible to create a laser that can start a fire from a long distance and the answer to that is yes in fact we've been doing that for decades I even have a photograph in my uh, picture file of a GI this is back in the 70s I think uh, with a rifle, a laser rifle firing a laser beam sufficient to set off explosive many many hundreds of feet away. So instead of getting a match and lighting the fuse of an explosive and then blowing yourself up in the process, why not simply use a laser gun and shoot that laser beam and ignite that explosive? And we did this decades ago, back in the 1970s as I recall. And so yes, other countries are working on these things too. We shouldn't be naive to think that only certain countries are working on this technology. But the bottom line is, of what use? Of what practical use are these technologies? Can they be controlled? Will they get out of control? These are the bigger questions. And for the most part, lasers in warfare have been a a big disappointment. It turns out that laser power dissipates when it goes through air, for example, meaning that the power of the laser beam diminishes considerably, uh, meaning that the Buck Rogers idea of laser guns and things like that, uh, well, yeah, still possible, but more expensive and more unstable than we originally thought. That's why we don't have ray guns, for example. Uh, It would simply cost too much and require a power supply that we don't have to create a ray gun. So the idea of a ray gun never materialized for practical considerations. You need a power pack, a tiny power pack that you can fit in your hand, for example, to energize a ray gun. And unfortunately, we don't have that. We don't have batteries. We don't have portable power packs sufficient to drive uh, something like a ray gun. So the idea of going into battle with a laser ray gun battling away and uh, defeating your enemy is still a A dream rather than a reality. We simply don't have a portable power pack sufficient to drive ray guns. Well, unfortunately, that's it for Science Fantastic. Once again, you can always give us a call 24-7, anytime, day or night. Give us a call at 612-564-8135. And maybe you can have your thoughts heard on national radio. Because why should we scientists have all the fun? Why don't you just jump right in? Give us a call at 612-564-8135.